This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Helen Farmer with you for something of a health special on today's episode. We are in conversation with Dr. Rachel Kaminsky. She was on hand discussing the severity of asthma in the region and what can be done about it, including a new treatment that teenager Khaled has undertaken himself. But what have the results been so far? Not one but two experts in the studios. We talked about mindset and the management of breast cancer. Dr. Caroline and Tanya Sibley on hand to talk about an upcoming event. Discussing the importance of peer-to-peer support when it comes to anti-bullying in UAE schools. What is happening in one Dubai school that many could potentially be learning from? And in our psychology hour, Dr. Thrai was on hand as we talked about self-worth. Where do you get yours from? Why do so many of us need praise and compliments? And what can you do to boost that self-esteem? Having a health show today, not by any design, but because there are so so much to talk about and some amazing experts. And we're exploring severe asthma this afternoon, a condition that actually affects millions, probably more than you realise, which can pose unique challenges to both patients and healthcare providers. Um, Joining us now, Dr. Rachel Kaminsky, consultant pulmonary disease expert from the Saudi German Hospital. She's got 17 years of experience both here and the UK. She's a leading expert in severe asthma and providing consultation and treatments. And we're talking about biologic treatments and we're going to be joined very soon by Khaled who has just had his very first biologic treatment. He's had severe asthma since he was an infant. Now Dr Rachel you're a new addition to the UAE. Welcome. How are you? Oh I'm good thank you. Yes thank you. It's just been a couple of months so I'm I'm curious really I mean we we can talk about all sorts of you know where to go for dinner and things like that but from from a, a doctor's point of view what have your initial observations been when it comes to asthma and any geolog- kind of geographical differences between the UK and the UAE? So I've been so surprised how many patients come in with typical asthma symptoms, so wheezing, cough, periodic breathlessness. Whenever they get uh, a cold, they get very unwell and are then reliant on nebulizers um, and actually then doing proper breathing tests on them and seeing that they actually have got asthma. So how common it is over here in Dubai. um, But undiagnosed up to that point? Undiagnosed. um, Patients sort of think, oh, I just have asthma periodically. I don't have it all the time. And Mm. it's just when I get a cold. And sort of the understanding of treatments and, and that they're there to really prevent any variation in symptoms. Um, And also... The, the patients that have got severe asthma that are needing recurrent courses of steroids um, and how we can avoid this. So it's, it's just been amazing seeing some amazing patients and um, being able to sort of explain to them what's going on with their lungs and, and how we can help. Now, you mentioned nebulizers there. Now, my, my daughter is six and has had asthma since she was little when we've had a few nights in ICU with pneumonia and, and acute asthma attacks. And she's actually doing great, to be honest. Um, however, People love a nebulizer here. And it's interesting when I've had doctors from all over the world, um, UK included, they've had a similar reaction to you. Going, Why are we having nebulizers pushed on us as, as parents and patients? And I wonder if you could explain a little bit about, you know, your take on that and why perhaps they're not the solution that most pharmacies seem to think they are. So if you're struggling for breath and your airways are completely closed up, then a nebulizer is the right treatment because what it will do, it will relax the smooth muscle and let air in. 
But if you're that unwell and you're reliant on a nebulizer, you need to be have or have at least seen a healthcare professional mm-hmm. um, and be on a treatment plan. And the smooth muscle is only a small part of what's going on in your airways. You've got all the airway mucosa where all of that inflammation is happening and you're not treating that. And over time, if you don't actually treat what the cause of asthma is, the airways are going to become narrowed, they're going to remodel, and then the patient will go from having intermittent variable symptoms to having persistent symptoms and they'll lose lung function and we won't be able to fix them and it's a slippery slope really. Um, we've had a number of messages for you. Dr. Rachel Kaminsky with us today from the Saudi German Hospital. She's a consultant pulmonary disease expert. Um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit, I know it sounds like a really basic question, but when we say severe asthma, how does it differ from mild and moderate and what impact can it have on patients' lives? So um, over in uh, the UAE, we think about one in 10 people have probably got underlying asthma. Of that, about 5% of them will have severe asthma. So severe asthma is when you're on maintenance treatment, so you're on an inhaled corticosteroid, you're on a bronchodilator, and your symptoms are still not managed. Mm. So you're still reaching for your blue inhaler, you're still having um, episodes of waking up at night, you're still not able to do the things that your peers are able to do. So actually, that's the diagnosis of severe asthma. Also being reliant on other medicines like oral steroids, which actually have lots of side effects that we don't want our patients to be on. So um, severe asthma is common um, and uh, we think about 5% of the whole asthma population actually have severe asthma. A message here on 4001 for you, doctor, saying, is there a psychological part to asthma? I get every time I don't have an inhaler close by. Is that something you've heard from patients in the past? So there is a safety blanket. I mean, I can't imagine not being able to breathe. It must be the scariest thing in the world. And that's part of the reason I love being an asthma doctor, because meaning that patients don't have that fear anymore um, is so important. But um, yes, of course, if you've not been able to breathe and knowing that your inhaler is not there, then you'll start breathing in a dysfunctional way. Mm -hmm. You'll start hyperventilating. You'll then get these horrible feeling in your fingers and your mouth. And then actually you're not ventilating properly. So you're not getting enough oxygen in. And that can actually trigger an asthma attack. It can cause the airways to go into a spasm. I wanted to ask you about the management then, because it sounds like it's quite a complex management for severe asthma. So what are some of the more medical advancements um, when it comes to treating this? And I guess what are you excited about? We are going to be hearing from Khaled in just a few minutes, who's 15 and he started a treatment. Can you explain what you feel like have been some of the most significant advancements in this space recently? So severe asthma is probably the most exciting place in respiratory medicine at the moment because we have got treatments that put patients with severe asthma into remission so it turns off the biology so they no longer have the cells that are actually driving their asthma so we know about 85 percent of patients with severe asthma it's mainly driven by a white blood cell called an eosinophil that becomes overreactive and is sitting in the airway waiting to overreact to cold viruses all sorts of things Mm -hmm. so we have targeted medicines that also block this cell. We also have medicines that block other molecules that go around showing your body that you've got things that you're allergic to are also overreacting. So we've got about five, six biologic treatments. And what these do is these actually work within the airways. Um, so they're an injection that patients can take at home. Um, Khaled will tell you how easy it is to take. It's just an injection underneath the skin uh, that they have either monthly or every two monthly that just 
reduce these cells or reduce some of the um, signals that pull these cells to the airways so that the patients don't have that reservoir of cells that are going to go crazy and tell their body they're under a nuclear attack and that they're at risk. And actually then they'll just respond normally to the environment like somebody without asthma. So there's there's all of that. But there's also amazing inhaled treatments that actually um, now we know that we can take on a variable basis that you can up and down titrate with your symptoms. But actually having some inhaled corticosteroids at the time is really important. Joining us in the studio from the Saudi German Hospital, we've got Dr. Rachel Kaminsky. We are going to be speaking to Khaled next, who has just started some of the treatments we've been talking about today. Text lines are open. We've had messages asking, um, how common is it to outgrow asthma in children? Does the old wives' tale of blowing into a paper bag help with individuals who are hyperventilating? No such thing as a small or silly question, guys. Dr. Rachel Kaminsky is with us today from the Saudi German Hospital as we look at severe asthma. And we're joined by patient Khaled, 15 years old and I have to say in great health in the studio today. But that hasn't always been the case. You've had severe asthma since you were, since you were little, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about your first memories of being unwell. Do you remember being in the hospital or any, anything that happened when you were really little? So, yeah, I've been to the hospital a couple of times for the asthma. I remember... Uh, sometimes like lots of times like if there's lots of dust in my house or in my room I just I don't know what I'm breathing it just goes into my lungs and I cough a lot I wheeze a lot I just it's really 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 scary sometimes Mm -hmm. so um uh that's some memories I have and uh, I'm just very happy and I'm very grateful for being one of the first patients uh, in I think the Middle East right yeah, Rachel, we've got into new treatments to talk about. So you, we'll, we'll find out a little bit more about what's, what you've just had on your 15th yeah. birthday. Um, has it affected you then growing up, whether it was doing sports at school or any social stuff? Colored? Yeah, yeah, a lot. So in school, there's PE class. Uh, and basically, when I was a kid, uh, primary school, almost every single PE class, I had to sit down on the side or or just take long breaks and just watch all the other kids playing. And I'd, I'd always, I've always wanted to play with them, but mm. whenever I play, after like five minutes of doing exercise, I always just, I'm breathless. I just can't play anymore. And I fear that if I play anymore, I'll lose my breath and not like... Yeah, just, it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, yeah, as, you, yeah. as you spoke about earlier, Doctor. Tell us a little bit about meeting Khaled and, and I guess what and please don't over doctor it for us because I'm, I'm, I'm keeping up as much as I can with the word pulmonary um, but what what exactly um, would your diagnosis be for Khaled and how have you decided to treat? So we took a thorough history and we saw that Khaled had had severe asthma so he was on taking his inhalers like he should be um, overly reliant on his reliever inhaler still having asthma attacks still needing steroid tablets, still needing emergency visits to the hospital. Mm. So then we need to work out what type of asthma patients have. So we phenotype them. Um, To do this, it's very easy. We do some breathing tests to see how severe the asthma is. We do another breathing test to see if there's inflammation going on within the airways. We do a blood test to see if they've got elevated levels of either a molecule called IgE or eosinophil. And then we can give them a phenotype. So Khaled had too many of a white blood cell called an eosinophil. He also had a slightly raised uh, molecule that was going around showing him his dust and his cat and his dog dander and making him have reactions. But the main thing for him was the eosinophil. So we've now given him a drug 
that um, will stop his body making too many of these white blood cells that then sit in the airways and overreact to things. Very, very simple. Um, and it's uh, painless. Would you say, Khaled, painless yeah, injection? I didn't feel anything. Little, just a little injection? Yeah, like five seconds. And then how, how long does it... Do you, have you felt any difference since taking it? How long has it been? Very, very, very big difference. From, I think it was like two weeks ago or maybe a week ago, and ever since then, I've been able to breathe normally, breathe better. Still have to take my uh, my like uh, inhalers on the side, of course. But um, uh, I've really seen a big difference. And actually, I have been going to the gym a lot, like almost every single day. Wow. And yeah, and before this uh, syringe, this uh, injection, uh, whenever I would do like cardio, like uh, treadmill and stuff like that, I would always lose breath after five minutes and take like a, a five minute break. But now, ever since this injection, I have been like doing 35 minutes, 40 minutes of treadmill whenever I go. And I am basically like, I can do it perfectly. Life changing, yeah. potentially life saving. It is amazing. We've just had a, a number of messages. One here saying, just want to say I'm currently inpatient, admitted yesterday at Saudi German Hospital under Dr. Rachel. <laughs> She's been absolutely brilliant, spot on with everything she's advised from the meds to the treatment. A big shout out to her. Can't thank her enough. From a very happy patient, a.k.a. Claire, of whom is also a fan of the show. Um, Claire, that must be so amazing to yeah. think that this could perhaps potentially wasn't going to be in your life and your future and being able to do the things you want to do. So how are you feeling now? I'm just feeling great and I'm just really, really, really thankful for Dr. Rachel to help for helping me with uh, my asthma and stuff and i just i just can't believe that it's going to go away um let's talk about that because i've had a number of messages one asking about growing out of asthma is that something that is common can happen and do we know why and when that might might occur so yeah asthma is um caused by your genetics and your environment so it's a mixture of the two and how your then epigenetics change so if you have a mother with asthma you're two times more likely to have asthma uh, if you have a father with asthma similar if you have both parents with asthma your chances massively increase what about eczema uh, so any type of allergic disease they're all in the same family so it's my fault my daughter has asthma Sorry. <laughs> and it's my dad's dad's my fault yeah it all it all comes together but in, in terms of growing out of it when does that tend to happen fingers crossed so what can happen, different viruses, different um, things you get exposed to can change how your body reacts mm. to in the environment. So if you're born with quite bad asthma uh, or sort of develop in your, when you're five, six, um, when you go through puberty, obviously your body goes through a massive change. You're exposed to lots of different viruses in your young uh, childhood and, and young adult life. So things can change very quickly and patients can then have a different reaction to their environment and can actually not then have asthma symptoms. But the problem is, if you've had asthma as a child, you are actually still, even if you grow out of it, likely to develop it again, either during pregnancy or in your fourth or fifth decade of life. So mm -hmm. the risk is still there. Um, and what we want to do is sort of highlight that to patients and kind of say, look, well, you know, these are the things, these are your risks, these are things that will help you maybe not get asthma. So um, larger family sizes, having exposure to um, lots of animals in early life, um, all of these things will help you not develop asthma. Um, COVID was not good for asthma because mm. we became very sterile and, and that was good for some viruses, but actually it's good to get some viruses because they protect you against asthma. How do you feel about a little quick fire round? 
Go for it. We've had a message saying, how often do you need to take the injections? Carla, do you know how, how, when's your next jab and how far apart are they? Yeah, um, the next one's going to be next month, right? And then after that, again, next month. And then I think it'll be a year break, correct? So they'll be monthly. And then what yeah. we'll do with you, we'll look at you after 18 months and see. Um, we now have high hopes that if we start injections early in, in patients, that we can actually cause asthma remission, wow. um, turn the biology off and then potentially take away all treatments. I'm actually saying, is swimming good for asthma? It's a really good exercise. It's a really good exercise. No name on this one saying, myself and my son were diagnosed with asthma, but it turned out to be polluted air in our home. A few air dehumidifiers cleared the problem. Can you please ask the doctor about stress asthma? Um, so if you're, you can completely eliminate what's triggering your asthma, so say you're allergic to cats and you're then not exposed to it, that's very, very helpful. Um, stress asthma, we know that increased uh, levels of stress can cause asthma. They lower your immune response, meaning you're more likely to pick up viruses, again, which can trigger asthma. A message is saying, is there any truth in the old wives' tale about blowing into a paper bag to help if you're hyperventilating? Yep. So when you're hyperventilating, that horrible feeling you get in your lips and your fingers is because you're blowing off too much of your waste gas, your carbon dioxide. If you breathe into a paper bag, you're rebreathing it. So actually, that does make you feel better. That was a quick fire round indeed, guys. It's so lovely to meet you both and kind of to hear... I mean, I was going to say a happy end to the story, but it's not. It's the beginning of a whole new chapter of yeah. health for you. And I'm, I'm so, so thrilled for you. I really, really am. Will you keep us posted? Yes, for sure. Amazing. Sky is the limit. And Dr. Rachel, so many people asking for your details. With your permission, is it OK to share your link on your website, the Saudi German? Yeah, please. If, if you have any problems with sort of airways or asthma, I'd love to see you. And um, I'd love you to be another Khaled because it just makes me smile. Absolute pleasure to have you both in the studio. Thank you so, so much. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Throughout the month of October here at Dubai I 103.8, we are going to be doing our best to shine a much needed light on breast cancer awareness. Speaking to survivors, though, are currently battling the disease experts from a whole range of different backgrounds. We're going to be talking genetics in half an hour's time. Um, it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month and we're talking about, well, a bit of mindset, a bit of signs and symptoms and why a boat trip could be a big part in that breast cancer battle. Joining us now is Tanner Sibley. She is a clinical hypnotherapist and the organiser of the Yacht Yoga Retreat. And Dr Caroline Richardson, Senior Breast Cancer Oncologist Surgeon from MediClinic in Abu Dhabi. Decades of experience in this area. Tanya, lovely to have you with us. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Helen. Um, thank you for joining us today. And as I said, kind of putting an empowered spin on this. And I certainly think that's a really important part that we are going to be hearing over the course of the month from people who have sadly lost members of their family and friends to breast cancer, those who are currently going through it and those who have been through it. And I think it's so important to highlight that you know, most people listening today will have been touched by breast cancer in some shape Absolutely. or form. Can you explain a little bit about what your mission is with this, uh, with this event and why it's a, a cause close to your heart? Absolutely. So obviously being in the industry that I'm in, I actually had a lot of clients who were coming to me in remission from cancer and they were coming to me with, you know, anxiety based um, issues that they were scared the lump was going to come back. Um, medical hypochondria, you know, if there is a lump, oh my goodness, does that mean I now the cancer is now coming back? So that really sort of then kick started me really wanting to get more involved with raising awareness to breast cancer. 
my grandmother had breast cancer so I lost her to that but she was at an age after menopause so that's why Dr Caroline's on here to be able to talk to us you know what to look out for when and when um but it really is something which I really really do want to start uh, raising awareness for purely because with the media a lot of people tend to see only the bad stories Mm -hmm. and the sad stories but that's really not the case at all so we're being proactive. So, exactly. Now, Dr. Caroline, as I said, you've got decades of experience in this area in particular. Why did you want to focus on oncology when it came to dedicating your career and life, I guess? Well, that's a great question. Thank you, Helen. Um, for me, it was very much about how you deliver the news of, of actually breaking the breast cancer diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed that how that news is delivered can actually set the, the woman up for how she's going to travel through that very difficult journey, you know, with or without her family. Um, and so for me, it was, it was always, yes, the, the surgery is great and, and working in the multidisciplinary team, but making sure that the woman has a realistic hope when she leaves the consultation room is really important. Mm-hmm. That language you use must be really crucial in terms of setting up that mindset. And I guess that's perhaps where you guys can, can dovetail on language, on mindset, on positivity, but also the practical side of, you know, really what you're doing, you know, in clinic and in surgery. Would you mind, Dr. Caroline, talking about some of the statistics we're looking at when it comes to breast cancer? Is it on the rise or, rightfully so, are months like October doing their bit to raise awareness? So I think months like October are definitely raising awareness, but unfortunately the number of cases of breast cancer are rising year on year, and that's globally. Um, Some of that is down to uh, better statistical reporting, so we're just better at, at, at the data, Um, But we're definitely seeing it, unfortunately, in younger women, um, and we are seeing it um, across the board, as I say. Um, However, the the good news is that there's definitely improvements in survival, Mm. and so early detection is key. So breast awareness, uh, breast cancer awareness is really important, but if there's then the fear and people don't come forward, we miss that opportunity for early detection. Do you still think there's something of a stigma around going in to be examined? And I, I ask this because I'm sure you've seen plenty of pairs um, and there's no embarrassment <laughs> um, you know, from professionals such as yourself. But from the patient's point of view, still a bit of a, a reticence to put themselves in that situation. Yeah, I think so. It's a very personal um, uh, experience and um, particularly culturally, we often don't show our bodies to other people. So it's a very sensitive area, which, you know, I, I do my best to support the women and make sure that they feel comfortable as much as possible. Um, and also just that, you know, I, I always say, if no one shows you how to examine your breasts, how are you supposed to know how to do it? That's right. Um, Tanya, I wanted to ask a little bit about what's going to be happening on the day. So we are going to be setting... I wish I was. I'm going to be here. (laughs) You are going to be setting sail on the 8th of October in the morning. What's going to be happening on that yacht? Who's going to be there and what's your mission with it on the day? So my mission on the day, we set sail at 7.30am. It's a group of fabulous ladies, some who are dedicated to coming on my yacht yoga retreats, who I love. I've also got quite a few new ladies. And... I always like to have a purposeful meaning to these yacht yoga retreats. So in April, actually, I had a breast cancer survivor who came on, who gave her amazing story to the ladies. And in a, obviously, the one we have on Sunday with Dr. Caroline, she's going to come on, just do a Q&A and just, you know, teach these ladies. But the purpose 
of these yacht yoga retreats is that we are living in unprecedented times of unattachment to the natural world. And there are just so many women and men, but obviously my focus is on women, who are living day to day with chronic stress. Mm -hmm. Now, we know with chronic stress that that won't kill you, but long-term stress does. And there has been so much research showing that actually when you are under chronic stress, your prefrontal cortex, the part of your decision-making brain, the cells get eaten away at, but your amygdala, which is your emotional brain, is in fear or flight, is actually expanding. And that's just not what we... We don't want people in anxiety the whole time. So go out in nature. Any excuse. Um, <laughs> but no, so this is going to be happening on the 8th of October. We're going to be sharing some details in just a few moments. Joining us now, Tanya Sibley, uh, clinical hypnotherapist. She is the organiser of the Yacht Yoga Retreat, which is, of course, going to have a breast cancer awareness theme to the upcoming one this weekend. And Dr. Caroline Richardson is with us today, senior breast cancer oncology surgeon at MediClinic. We are going to be talking about self-examination, about who needs a mammogram and why. Um, and we've had a couple of messages, so we are going to go to the text line, including... If you're not sure about how to examine um, a message saying, what's lumps, what's fibrous, and when do I need to go and see a doctor? This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Ahead of the Yacht Yoga Retreat that's happening this weekend, we've got organiser Tanla Sibley. She's also a clinical hypnotherapist and Dr. Caroline Richardson joining us from MediClinic in Abu Dhabi, senior breast cancer oncology surgeon. Now, we've had a number of messages. We're going to get through as many as we can, if you don't mind, guys, on 4001. You can be anonymous, of course. Uh, no name saying, um, hi, all. I've tried doing my own breast checks, but as I'm slightly top heavy, I've got no idea if what I'm feeling are lumps or fibrous tissue or just normal areas in my breasts. Not so much a question, but I think that raises a really interesting point that there's still quite a lot of confusion in, in that message here saying, are larger breasts more prone to cancer? Dr. Karen, would, would you mind speaking to those points about breast texture, breast size, and if there is any correlation when it comes to cancer? Yeah, absolutely. So we're all different shapes and sizes and our breast tissue does feel different. So the breasts are made up mainly of glandular tissue, which is the milk producing tissue, and also fatty tissue. So it's the glandular tissue that feels a bit more fibrous, a bit firmer. And it's really important to understand what your individual breasts feel like. So when somebody comes to see me in the clinic and I demonstrate the breast self-examination and we learn it together... What I always say to them is, you're learning what your own breasts feel like. You're not looking, is this a lump? Is this? You're not a doctor. You're not trying to diagnose yourself. You're just trying to get to know what's normal for you. And then if you notice a difference, that's when it's important to go and get um, a check. Mm -hmm. And if the lady who, who wrote in and said, I don't know what's fibrous, I don't know what's glandular, if she goes along and has a check, she can discuss that with the doctor. She can have the um, assessment and, if necessary, an ultrasound and give herself that reassurance. And Tanya's been in touch saying, when should we start getting regular mammograms? How often should I have them? And do they hurt? The do they hurt? OK, so I turned 40 last year and it was the, it's the year of the first mammogram. It felt like a milestone moment in my life as a woman um is it a joyful fluffy experience no was it painful no i would say slight discomfort and you mentioned earlier about wanting to you know preserve modesty and, and, and privacy and i felt at no point 
exposed. I was covered up. You know, the technician was very respectful. Um, so what about the age? Is, it, is 40 the magic number, Dr. Caroline? Yeah, so here in the UAE, um, the, the screening programme from the UAE government starts at the age of 40. Um, it's every two years. Um, if you have a family history, then it may be that you start earlier or you have more frequent mammograms. Um, but every two years is what's recommended from the age of 40. So I don't mind sharing that I went for my first mammogram last year and then had to come back for an MRI because they found something they wanted to look at. And it was a case of, do you know what, you can have a biopsy done or you can come and have an MRI and we'll maybe we'll maybe do the same next year. And I was like, OK, I feel in control. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, And I think that's this fear of what's on the other side that can hold an awful lot of people back which is why Tanya I think these you know conversations are so important um so we've had a message going how to sign up and where are you leaving from so the yacht this weekend where are you leaving from and and how much room do you have on it um so at the moment we actually only have one space left I am doing another yacht yoga retreat in November all the details are on my Instagram page, uh, Rapid Mind Therapy, and on my website, rapidmindtherapy.org. So you can sign up that way. So I do do them regularly. I am looking at coming to Dubai Good. to do them as well. Excellent. Um, but yes, I, we do have one space on Sunday. Okay. And I'm sure you'll be getting some great content as well for, for sharing. And Dr. Klein, I mean, I'd be amiss to not ask you now about self-examination. So when is the best time to do it? And I'm talking about time of the month, even time of the day, you know, the where and the hows. Would you mind breaking it down for us? Absolutely. So the best time to do it is just after the period. Um, if you don't have a period, I just recommend put a reminder in your phone so you do it at the same time every month. You can do it standing up, lying down, in the shower. It doesn't matter. The most important thing is to follow um, a schedule so that you are examining the the whole of your breast, feeling behind your nipple and also going up into the armpit area because the breast tissue does extend up there. Mm-hmm. Um, again, there's lots of information that you can find on the um, on websites online or um, I, I give out a leaflet to everybody in, in my clinic about how to do the breast self-examination. I just want to be super clear. We um, had a message saying um, larger breasts are not more prone to breast cancer. Correct. They're not, they're not more prone to breast cancer, but they can be more difficult to examine if you've got something deeper in the breast. So again, mm-hmm. if you're not sure, just go along and get yourself checked out. So when we are self-examining, and I think that's a really good point about it becoming just a monthly habit, what are we looking for and what are some of the signs and symptoms that we might need further investigation yeah. with an expert? So the first thing to do actually is look at your breasts in the mirror and just look to see if you notice any changes in the skin or the nipple. Lift your arms up and you'll see if there's any pulling or wrinkling. Then when you do the examination, you're looking for a firm, hard lump um, that's new. Um, You might be looking for any thickening, um, looking for any particular pain. uh, As I said, lumps in the armpit area. Um, also, if you get any nipple discharge, so some fluid, um, that's not usually a sign of breast cancer. But again, it's just something to go uh, and get checked out. But those would be the kind of main things to look out for. Now, you are an oncology surgeon, so you are there you know, on, on the front line and making decisions with, with patients about their, their treatment options. When is surgery necessary, Dr. Caroline? How do you make that call as an oncologist? So most women with breast cancer will have surgery as part of their treatment pathway. Um, One thing that is great about um, my job is it's very multidisciplinary. So I work very closely with my medical and clinical oncology colleagues to discuss surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, uh, medical therapies. And again, just going back to what I said earlier, um, the sooner that we detect the breast cancer, then the less treatment you're likely to require. Mm -hmm. Um, Tanya, you said earlier that you've been working with people who've been through breast cancer. Yeah. And 
I've had, uh, you know, a, a few friends who've said, you know, I'm in remission now and I thought it would be this happy, you know, dancing through yeah. meadows. And it's not the case because no. there's still fear. There's fear of recurrence. There's this identity of, you know, who am I now? And I feel different and I look different. Um, for someone that is going through chemotherapy or has, you know, thankfully come through the other side. Um, what role do you think hypnotherapy and mindset in general can, can play when it comes to that emotional well-being? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, you know, there's a lot of body dysmorphia and um, a lot of people are scared. You know, they have uh, medical hypochondria if there's a new lump or you're right, you know, you completely change. And when you're going through treatment and in and out, you've got the support of everyone around you. As soon as, you know, you get the all clear, everyone's life goes back to normal. So you're almost sort of left as in like, oh, my goodness, what what on earth just happened? Mm -hmm. So. Really, I mean, I have ladies who's come to me with all different things, but a lot of it is anxiety and body dysmorphia. Those are the two things I really work with them with. And with the hypnotherapy, what we're doing is we're not sort of regressing back to childhood trauma but what we are doing is just going back to a few scenes which is where they did develop the anxiety and then from there we're building on that and we're sort of reframing that belief that you know you you don't need this fear because you know data shows that 90% of your worries never come true there was you know research done in Pennsylvania University with that um, so it's really just sort of helping build that confidence within them again because they are amazing and they're shiny like little fairies on a Christmas tree and I want them to get back to that. Dr Caroline, you said earlier about the importance of delivery and language and I guess I wanted to ask you about mindset and my dad's been through cancer a few times and is in, in great fettle, as he would say. Um, but I think a big part of that was just how positive and pragmatic mm. he was from, from the very outset. And I wondered if, I don't know if there's been clinical data around this or if it's just something you can speak to anecdotally um, about patients that you've had in clinic and their attitude when it comes to beating breast cancer. Yeah, I think that, um, again, not using too much medical language, you know, not making it overcomplicated, breaking it down, um, you know, checking in, do you understand what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. also, you know, some patients are, are, well, most patients are completely shocked. And we know that all they hear, and there's a lot of data on this, they hear breast cancer, and that's it. So it's about going back and just repeating and supporting um, all the time to make sure they know what's happening. Guys, thank you so much for your time and from joining us from our nation's fair capital. Um, Tanya, for anyone that does want to find out more about that one spot for this weekend, but also the Yacht <laughs> Yoga Retreats more. moving Absolutely. forward, what's the best way of getting in touch? Um, you can contact me on my Instagram page and you can also go onto my website. And I would just like to say, Helen, a big thank you to essentially.ie for you know helping me with uh, providing the juices and to Rebecca Eleanor, who will be doing a showcase of her artwork on there the yacht as well. So that's this weekend. And one spot left. Dr. Karan, you are there at MediClinic in Abu Dhabi. Um, if anyone wants your details, would it be okay to share your page on their website? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. there you go, guys. This content is for informational purposes only and is not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Saha Abdulaziz is the Clinical Operation Manager at First Genomics, joining us to give us an understanding of that intricate connection between our genes and one of the most prevalent forms of cancer affecting women worldwide, breast cancer. Saha, how are you today? Hi, Helen. I'm good. 
thank you so much for being with us today. And I really want to have a bit of a deep dive into this topic. And I hope you can explain in perhaps not too doctorly terms that basic connection between genetics and breast cancer. How do our genes influence the risk of developing this disease? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, actually, I would highlight first something very important when the patients they, they ask: Is genetic is, is cancer genetic condition? Is uh, cancer considered a genetic disease? So um, I feel the the question is inaccurate. It's not accurate enough uh, um, to have the correct answer following that. And why I would say that because the answer to this right question is yes. Cancer is a genetic disease because it results from changes or abnormality in the genes. So we can say it is all the cancer are genetic-driven uh, conditions. But the right question should be: Is genetic is cancer an inherited condition or hereditary condition? Then we should highlight to the patient that around 10% of these uh, cancer cases are hereditary. So what do we mean by uh, inherited or hereditary cancer? It means that we are born with a defect in the gene. It's not acquired later in life, Mm -hmm. and it can be passed from one generation to another. And those who have the inherited genetic uh, mutation, they are at much higher risk than the general population to develop cancer. We've just been talking there about the importance of early detection through self-examination, but what mm-hmm. about the advancements in genetic testing techniques that could aid in that early detection? How has this technology evolved over the years, and what does it actually look like in practice, Saha? Mm-hmm. Well, um, just before uh, offering the test or requesting the test for a patient, we would like to have a discussion through the physician or the genetic counsellor to understand if the patient is at risk, increased risk, as uh, um, like in terms of the family history. So they will collect some family history from the fam- medical family history from the patient, and based on that, we can decide and evaluate the risk. We advise them to go for the genetic test, or maybe it will not be required. So the test is a simple blood test. It just you know we collect blood from the patient, and it takes around three to four weeks. Uh, but the very important part before requesting the test is to understand if the patient is one of the considered to be high risk for uh, hereditary cancer, including breast cancer. And what about genetic counselling? Can you explain what that is and and what role that has in understanding and managing that hereditary risk? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. So we said like only about 10% of all cancer types or all cancer cases are inherited or caused by uh, inherited genetic mutation or genetic uh, change. So not every family with cancer uh, history, uh, they are caused by genetic or inherited genetic uh, change. And not every single individual with history of cancer, they are at risk of hereditary cancer. Mm-hmm. That's why there are some criteria uh, to evaluate the risk because we don't want the, 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 the people to, to panic and to start saying, oh, I have uh, family history. Because the family history... Uh, we can call it strong family history if we have enough criteria, which will include if we have two or more uh, family members, like close family members. We're talking about first and second degree cousins on the same uh, um, on the same part of the family, like 
either maternal or paternal. So, for example, if I have a patient saying that I have my paternal aunt with breast cancer and then my maternal aunt with breast cancer, they not consider multiple uh, um, uh, family members with cancer because we need to track the same paternal uh, um, or maternal uh, origin. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you, you know, in, in recent years we have seen significant progress in targeted therapies that are based on that genetic profiling. Can you tell us a little bit about how genetic information is used to tailor treatments for breast cancer mm-hmm. patients? You know, and what are some of the, I guess, potential benefits of personalised medicine in this, in this context in particular? Mm-hmm. So uh, genetic testing for cancer are divided in two different categories. The first one is the diagnostic one, and it's for the 10% of inherited genetic cancer. So this one will be through blood test. It's not the tumor biopsy. It's, uh, we take blood sample from the, the, the patient who's identified to be at high risk of uh, inherited cancer. And that test will help to understand if uh, uh, this patient or the individual will need to undergo the high-risk management program or not. And um, the other category of genetic testing is the oncology part, which is not about the inherited, it's not to diagnose the inherited uh, uh, cancer. We do the test or the test is performed on the tumor Mm -hmm. uh, cell itself. We call it tumor profiling, and through the test, we can, from, of course, from the changes that we call the mutations, from these mutations and protein change in the tumor or the tumor cell, we can, according to the, the, the published data and uh, the studies, uh, the, the published studies, we can group the patient into different, uh, uh, um, like, medication groups. So the, the test will help. Instead, you know, usually the doctor will try all the uh, approved medication for cancer or all the approved protocols until we feel there is one of them that is uh, uh, more effective than the other for this patient. The genetic testing or the tumor profiling will help the doctor to choose the right uh, program, treatment program for this patient according to the test instead of wasting some time trying which which, uh, Mm -hmm. program is the best for the patient Mm -hmm. for going. So it will save a lot of time and, and of course, like uh, economically. And lastly, Asaha, I've had a number of messages asking about insurance. Is there a low-cost genetic testing available? Are you able to speak to that? Is genetic testing covered by insurance or able, able to give us some insights into costs involved if people do have concerns and want to be proactive mm-hmm. in genetic testing around breast cancer? Mm-hmm. So not all uh, insurance companies can cover uh, the, the, the cancer, but in our lab, we are in, in Dubai Healthcare City, we are trying to offer it as a lower cost, so it's you know accessible to all patients. We also offer like genetic counseling if the, the patient would like to understand if they are at high risk and what they need to do the next step. We offer it free for charge, just they can call and book, and then based on that they can decide on the test. Uh, but for the insurance, I'm not sure if all the companies can cover uh, are able to cover the, the genetic testing. But um, like again. Um, at our lab, we can offer the test as uh, um, a cheaper price, like compared compared to the the market price. Thank you so much for all, the... all our tests. Sorry, go yeah. ahead. I just wanted to add that all our tests are being done in the UE in, in the in the country, so we can you know reduce the the cost of. Uh, 
of the test. So this is, we're talking about hereditary cancer today, but you also do yeah. um, the NIPT screening, carrier screening as well. So thank you so much, yeah. Saha. I really appreciate your insights on this topic. Um, and I think thank it just you. comes back to that point about getting as much information as possible when it comes to knowing your risk group um, when it comes to breast cancer. Saha, I really appreciate your time, Saha, speaking to us from First Genomics, as she's saying there in Healthcare City. A recent study stated that children in the Middle East experience more bullying than in any other part of the world. As a Cartoon Network Mina YouGov survey also found an increase in cyberbullying for children aged between 6 and 12. And nearly three out of four parents here said they felt confident that their child's school was doing everything it could to address and prevent bullying. One of those schools doing just that is GEMS West Green International in Sharjah. And joining us now on Zoom is Basil Ahmed, an ex-senior student at the school who was part of the team looking at teen mental health first aiders. And now he's graduated. He's abroad. He's handed the baton down to 17-year-old Ibrahim, who is in the studio now. How are you, Ibrahim? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm really well. Thank you so much for, for being here. Have you had to sneak off school a little bit early? Kind of, like I left early school. but That's okay. And it's proof that you were actually on the radio. You know, it's not like you've just gone home for a bit of a rest. You are here. So we've got video evidence. Uh, We've also got Basil, as I said, um, live on the line. How are you, sir? Hello. Hello. I'm doing very good. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Um, Let's start with you, if you don't mind. I'd love to hear a little bit about the Teen Mental Health First Aiders. What is that all about? What's the mission of it? All right. So uh, the Teen Mental Health First Aiders was actually... Uh, first of initiated by the school team, the um, heads of school and head of school himself. So uh, the main goal for the team mental health first aiders is they go around school, make sure that all students are well behaved. There's no bullying going around and all that. But uh, while we actually do that, there's a question that rises upon is um, when students go around the senior students specifically, the team mental health first aiders, when they go around and they have a look around the students well, if someone is bullying someone else and they see them, um, they're going to hide it. They're going to be like, oh, there's a senior student. He's mm-hmm. a team at the health. Well, we need to, you know, make sure that he doesn't see us. Be sneaky. That's why. Yeah, be sneaky. Exactly. Um, that's why I said I stepped in and um, had the tweaks in the system. And um, we made we offered a lot of opportunities for the students to reach out to us anonymously. Um, well, I. I was bullied when I was, you know, in the earlier ages of school. And I know how it feels. And definitely, definitely by far, if I was getting bullied, I wouldn't be thinking of speaking to a, to a teacher or to my parents or because that's going to arise tension between me and my family. And also it's going to, that's my mindset actually. But I think that if I spoke to a teacher, maybe it's going to make me like, you know, look weak, look incapable of solving those uh, stuff on my own. Mm-hmm. So that's why the team mental health aiders are there. They have, they're going around to give the opportunity for the students to speak to them. And yeah, most of them are um, 18, 18 years of age, 17 years of age. So all of them have the, opportun- the opportunity to speak to someone at their age and to be more comfortable to solve the issues. Basil, can I ask you about the kind of training involved? Because I would imagine some of the topics that will come up when it comes to bullying can be, you know, can be heavy. Can, it can get serious. So what about training to make sure you're responding in an appropriate way and escalating when it's necessary? Uh, well, first of all, to make things clear, we got our training from uh, Lighthouse Arabia. So um, what happened is that um, the school 
managed some of the senior students to go to Lighthouse Arabia. And they got, they went there and have a practical training and they got, um, they got an idea of uh, what a person who's getting bullied might act. Mm -hmm. Um, How, how do they, yeah, Miami, how, how do they look like? How their emotions, their physical appearance, and um, the student, the senior students who went there had an idea about that. They knew exactly um, a person who's getting bullied, uh, their physical appearance, their emotions, and they can detect that from just going around and seeing them. Um, just to make things even more clear, um, they aren't there to prescribe any, you know, um, what should you do at a at a stage of a bullying, they're there to help you mm-hmm. and they're to assist you to go through these times. And of course, if things are escalated, they're well trained to provide you with a well prepared person like our school uh, school counselor uh, at Wesley International School. Can I ask you then, um, and I'm going to ask Ibrahim this, the same question, um, what kind of stories or issues did you hear in your time as a teen mental health first aid at Basel? Uh, the stories we hear about in Wesley? What 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 were, what were what were students coming to you about, and what were some of the the issues that you identified during your time? Okay, I'm going to share a story I had uh, when I first started this anti-bullying campaign, uh, which which was around four months ago. Um, while I was at the school, uh, we had a grade eight student come up to me, and he told me that um, I'm getting bullied um, uh, online teams actually so we had some uh, teams meeting at that time so he told me that we are having uh, we're facing a um, um, I'm facing a cyber bullying and of course I spoke to him I stood up with him and I sat with him um, what happened is uh, I went over the you know the chats in the, the teams page we went over all of them and of course we had to I spoke to him and I spoke it wasn't it wasn't really that severe of a situation and but still we professionally you know uh, carried out this uh, the investigation i had the his head of year come in and we spoke to those students who were involved in the bullying case and again uh, everything was anonymous the students were were then you know faced with the uh, appropriate uh, circumstances and then they it never happened again the student is happy um, I still spoke to him after the investigation was over. He was really happy and he was really proud of their team's work. Thank you for sharing that, Basil. Really appreciate it. And Basil speaking to us from abroad. He's since graduated Gems West Green International in Sharjah. And joining us in studio is Ibrahim, who has uh, taken over. Tell us a little bit about, I know it's really hard to put a number on it, but do you feel like there has been a reduction in bullying since this conversation's become, you know, at the forefront in the school? Like, honestly... I see it that like improved. Like I didn't see any bullying happening the past two years when the anti-bullying team has started. Like when I was younger, like four years ago, we didn't really have the anti-bullying team, and there was some bullying here and there. But when Basil and like Gems uh, West Green they worked together to actually put the effort in making an amazing team mm-hmm. to develop on our students to make them oh. You should be together as one, not diverse, not like, oh, everyone's segregated and stuff. That's why I think during the time of the anti-bullying team actually happening, it decreased a lot, the bullying rates. I've heard like many, many less problems compared when I was like year seven, year eight, where like the problems were kind of high. But now like I don't see it because everyone like, we learn from one each other, yeah. learn from their mistakes and stuff. More awareness. Undeveloped, yeah. 
Um, I think it's really interesting to think about it being peer-to-peer and as Basil kind of alluded to earlier, there is this fear of telling a teacher might put a target in, on your back that, you know, things could get worse, that, you know, you'd snitched and, you know, that they, you'd gone running to a teacher. Um, what When it came to the training that you guys did, and I think, you know, Lighthouse Arabia, you know, fantastic place to be um, sharing that information. What were some of your big takeaways when it comes to identifying bullying that might be happening, whether it's online or in person, that you think maybe all students should know, Ibrahim? They look tired. Like, you can just see them coming to school and stuff. Their face looks tired. They just don't want to be here. That's why, like, bullying is a major thing around us. That's why we have to help students because, like, students, like, the school should be a safe place for him. Mm. Why should he come and, like, be sad about it, upset about it, not even motivated to do anything about it? So we're here to actually talk with them. We see, oh, he looks sad. He looks tired. So we just go up to him, actually talk with him. That's why, like, most of the team members, they are big, kinded heart people. They know what's going on. They know how he's feeling and stuff. So we go sit with them. We go talk with them. We communicate. We be their older brother, let's say, because, like, right now, seniors, we're the oldest people. We just talk with them, have some social. We can even let them sit down a bit give them like a snack or something, sit down, play Uno with them. And then they're going to open up for us. We should make them not feel like, like, yes. The word I got there <laughs> that, that kept on coming to me as you were describing that student was kind of defeated, you know, yes. the, the body language, the, the attitude, the outlook. And as you say, school, not every day, um, is, you know, a fun, a fun, happy place. And we want that to be a sanctuary for socialising and for learning, of course. And when you are feeling threatened, you're, you're never going to be able to be feel secure and be able to learn effectively. I guess my question, last question, unfortunately, is, you know, if a student does confide in you, Ibrahim, um, how is it dealt with from there? Can you explain the process at the school? Well, the process is really simple. It's just what we have is like in our library, we have a big box that people can actually put notes if they don't want to uh, like, like they want to not talk with someone. Mm-hmm. They're too afraid. They can write on words. You can just put it there or they can just message us on Instagram. We probably have like an Instagram coming up soon because like this year. And then they message us anonymously or whatever they want. They tell us their year group. We go, we see that during the lesson, they have this, this, that. We take them from their lesson. We sit them by ourselves, me and a team member, because we're a team member made of five. We go sit with them, and then we just talk with them. We we first talk about his life, what he's going through, like break the ice a little. Mm-hmm. And then he's going to talk about our bullying, like his bullying issues, what he's going through. Then from there, we're going to tell him that it's okay, ignore negativity. We're going to put what we learned from the course when we went to light and I like, learn and like teach him that oh sometimes this happened but you can just avoid negativity then we go to the person who actually bullied most people who actually bully don't even really know they're bullying they just thought oh we're just joking around we're having fun but they don't really know what's happening in the inside that's what we bring it out we talk to them bring out scenarios we tell them what if your younger brother actually been through that how would you feel mm-hmm. and then we let's say it escalated and stuff that's why we get teachers our counselors and let's say they don't want to talk with the student, we can just take them to our counselor. Like it's everything. Like no one should feel ashamed of coming forward because we're here as a family. That's what school, what, that's what life is. We're here to bring a message and bullying and bring each other together. That's the whole purpose of life. Well said. Well said. Do you think this is going to be something you'd like to do more of in the future? Could you see yourself being in a, you know, a, a counselor role in the future, Ibrahim? Or is this something for, for the school only? 
Well, I see myself, I'm a good talker. Like, I can see myself as I can understand what people are going through without even mentioning it. Mm-hmm. Like, I learned a lot of leadership skills from my school and stuff, learning how to actually be a man. Like, at one point, I was a naughty little kid. <laughs> but then, like, my head of years, till this day, I remember, he used to always come to me, Mr. Orlando, he used to come to me and tell me how, oh, you should be a man and stuff. He made me learn from my mistakes and maybe, like, develop the man I am right now. Well, you I'm really be proud. proud yes. You should be really proud. Thank you so much for coming in. I think every school could really benefit from this kind of program. So really appreciate you shining a light on it. And I'm, I'm so pleased that it has had such a positive impact on you um, and, of course, the, the whole student community at GEMS West Green International there in Sharjah. Ibrahim, keep us posted. I can tell by the look in your eye, this isn't the last time you're going to be on Dubai I-103.8. Next stop, business breakfast, all right? Thank you for <laughs> making me join us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much. Really, really appreciate your time. And uh, thank you again. Joining us in studio, Dr. Thry, clinical psychologist, as we talk about self-worth. Now, compliments have this ability to do more than make your day. Research shows that receiving genuine compliments can boost your health and even enhance performance. But why do some of us need more praise than others? And where do we get our self-worth from? I'm curious as well how we can boost it in healthy ways. If you want to share your thoughts on this, if you've got any questions, concerns... Or tell us, where do you get your self-worth from? Text lines are open. Dr. T, how are you? I'm well, Helen. How are you? Yeah, really well. Really, really well, thank you. I'm, I love a, love a catch-up. You even brought cookies today, so you can stay. You can stay. <laughs> um, I'm curious, though, when it comes to definitions, self-worth, self-esteem, are we talking about the same thing, or how do you separate them in your mind as a psychologist? Well, essentially, I think they're very much connected and linked. So, essentially, self-esteem is... And I think every English teacher would hate me for using the word in the definition, but the esteem that you have towards yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas your self-worth also has a lot to do with the value that you hold of yourself as well. So they're very much connected, but wouldn't necessarily be considered the exact same thing. Now, studies have suggested the way we receive compliments can significantly impact our Mm self-worth. Could you share some insights on, you know, why that might be the case? Well, essentially... As social creatures, we definitely are looking for some form of validation or approval from other people. Even Freud talked about the fact that we have an innate need for social approval or approval in general. And that's not just approval of oneself, but of others approving us as well. So essentially, when we talk about compliments, and especially genuine compliments, right? Not not the fake stuff, but the genuine compliments give us that extra validation that either we are being reinforced by what we already believe about ourselves – or we are getting the validation of some form of goodness or worth or value within ourselves, mm-hmm. And so it's it, it really helpful for developing and building that sense of worth. I think it's interesting to think about what you said, a genuine compliment, but also mm-hmm. who it's from. Right. <laughs> you know, um, you know we, we, we want to be validated in the eyes of people that, that are important to us. Mm-hmm. And, you know disingenuous compliments just you know mean mean nothing you know a, a lot of the time but there is this kind of growing conversation i guess between the balance of self-worth and external validation and you know i'm sure social media is going to come up in this conversation so how do you think that individuals can have this healthy sense of self-worth without relying solely on compliments and, and praise from others how can it be, be fostered i think you said the perfect word which is solely 
right? The idea that we solely rely on other people for for our own self-definition, this is where it becomes problematic. Mm. So when we have a sense of self, um, and it doesn't have to be confirmed, it just has to be some form of consistency. So consistent sense of self and a recognition of who we are and what we are worth and what we, what, of the value that we bring. When we have that, and then we have the external validation, that's actually really healthy because we are social creatures. We do require both. Mm -hmm. But what becomes detrimental is when we expect and we rely solely on the external validation to give us any type of sense of worth. And that really comes from our childhood and not having any kind of um, self-worth or any kind of validation or approval as we were growing up. And then presumably when you're not getting that validation, not getting that praise, those compliments, it feels like something's wrong. With you, absolutely. Yes. It's really interesting. Can I ask you then, and I I don't want you to put a number on it, I'm kind of curious, low self-esteem, low self-worth, how often do you think that can um, really impact mental health significantly and enough to, to seek help for it you know and what are some of the issues it can be related to definitely a lot because even when you think of low self-worth i tie it quite significantly and there's so much correlation that connects to and he, you're gonna like me for this boundaries mm-hmm. lack of of boundaries, which usually happens with a lot of individuals who people please. So what ends up happening is that when we're growing up, if we are, we have a parent that doesn't validate us or our caregivers are not really giving us a lot of information as to who we are in a positive manner, they're not reinforcing that, then we tend to say, okay, I'm clearly not worthy. I'm clearly not good enough. So now I'm going to do whatever it takes for me to get any kind of positive attention from my parents. Therefore, I will like negate and let go of all of the boundaries that I have, all of my own emotions, all of my own feelings, all of the things that I feel are real for me. And I will just do whatever they want me to do in order to get that validation. That's where people pleasing is built. And this can be in the workplace. It can be Mm -hmm. in romantic relationships, friendships. And we've actually had a message which we're going to come to next. No name. And you can reach out, of course, anonymously. That's no issue at all saying, how can I stop getting validation from men and associating that to my self-worth? We'll be exploring that next. And I'm curious, there has been a recent study that shows that if you compliment your colleague, it can reflect well on you by your boss. Intriguing. Dr. Thraya is a clinical psychologist at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic, and we are unpacking self-worth, self-esteem, where it comes from, how to boost it, and really why so many of us seek approval and validation in quite often all the wrong places, such as social media, Dr. T. Would that something that's been coming up in clinic or you're seeing increasing amounts of research on? Yes, absolutely. And it's not just affecting our mental health, but it's also affecting our lifestyle. So a lot of individuals are staying up late at night because they're on their phones. Don't look at me like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not hinting anything, but all I'm saying is there are a lot of individuals that are not sleeping very well. Their sleep hygiene is really bad Mm. because of the fact that they're on their phone for quite some time. And so it ends up extending. And I'm guilty of it, too, to be honest. It's not it's not just every, you know, people who are not psychologists. We all are guilty of it because there is that dopamine rush that kicks in when, you know, either when you're looking for validation from from external sources or if you get likes or if you get comments and things like that. And so there is that rush every single time we have that. So social media can
can be very addicting. Mm-hmm. I'll use that word in air quotes, like very loosely, um, from that perspective, because we're just constantly looking for that external validation. Now, again, it can be used in ways that is beneficial as long as the balance is there. But yes. when it's that's again, like you said, the soul place that you get validation that's where it becomes detrimental let's get the text line some really interesting messages questions comments coming in on 4001 anonymous if you prefer a message saying the only time i expect or enjoy feedback is when i make a joke or else i don't seem to care hashtag narcissistic Mm, hashtag no (laughs) not narcissistic however what i would say is that um maybe you hold a lot of value to humor and to being funny and so when somebody does seem to give you that sense of validation on something that you tend to hold dear and think highly of yourself about then then that is something that you connect with and that's something you feel is genuine so that's like an identity thing as well if i'm not funny you know what am i bringing to the conversation which you are obviously bringing a lot to the conversation to but Don't that's the one you recognize. On yeah. yeah, interesting. Um, Mustafa's saying, I advise my clients to zero down on what it is they are looking at as self-worth and look for evidence that supports that value. Um, an interesting message here saying, I get my self-worth from hobbies. I create things I'm proud of like pottery or I push myself to do new things like hiking and it releases serotonin and the dopamine that other people get from social media. Ashwari, I... teach me your ways. <laughs> teach me your ways. What about looking for validation in all the wrong places um no name on this one saying um please 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 tell me how to stop getting self-validation from men now i don't know if this is someone who is dating or looking to date looking for matches looking for you know connections on social media this is this is not a new thing you know far from it and i'm not going to speak from any personal experience because i don't (laughs) want anything going on a podcast that my parents might listen to um (laughs) but why why can that come up and that could be in teens all the way through to adult Mm. years as well so when we talk about external validation and especially when it comes to relationships we have to remember the fact that when we were younger we felt a sense of abandonment or a sense of rejection either from our parents not treating us well not respecting our boundaries ignoring us whatever it is criticizing us and so on and so forth so what we tend to do is as humans and this is All of us, we all have an innate fear of being abandoned, fear of being rejected for who we are as a person. So sometimes when we are looking for that external validation, we are fearful of if we don't get that, that means we're not good enough. We're we're going to be rejected. We're going to be abandoned. And so mm-hmm. we tend to give up the things that matter to us in order to maintain other people's approval of us so that they can stay with us. So when it comes to moving away from other people's, especially men's uh, validation of women or women's validation of men, the best thing to start doing is try to switch that validation to an internal validation, Start starting to validate yourself first and having them be an How? extra Yes. The how is complex because it really just depends on the person, but definitely starting with looking at what matters to you and setting boundaries. You know, my favorite B word. Boundaries are very important because boundaries allow us to to teach ourselves what we are worth, what our value is. And Mm -hmm. once we start to give that to ourselves, we will no longer need it from other people, but we will definitely like it. It's so interesting in terms of that self-awareness that this listener's got in touch with and I think for so many people I'm sure a lot of people look back like much as I like myself and look on relationships and go how did I allow myself to be treated mm-hmm. that way and when your self-esteem is low you continue to let yourself be treated that way and that just creates this downward spiral but having that awareness and that circuit breaker of going this is not where I want to be getting my validation from right 
then that's huge. And yes. I hope that is a turning point. Dr. Thraya is in the studio. Where do you get your self-worth from? I've had a message here saying my brain, which is an interesting one. Um, we're also going to be talking about it in the workplace next. Um, what if you have a mismatch when it comes to feedback from your manager? That is what one listener has got in touch. Dr. Thraya, live in the studio for your psychology hour on Dubai I 103.8. Clinical psychologist Dr. Thraya with us in the studio from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. And we're talking about self-worth. Now, I wanted to ask about it in the workplace. We've had a message on this topic, but there was also been a recent study that... Um, well, the workplace is an interesting one it comes to giving and receiving compliments. Because we all get feedback at work. I prefer the positive. <laughs> Let me tell you, uh, as a radio presenter, when you have to go and sit and listen to yourself, that's... It's not the joy. It's not, it's not fun. Um, but for many people, you know, it's very quantifiable feedback. You know, you've got your KPIs, you've got the, your, your structure tied to your pay rise and promotion. And the delivery of that can be so, so crucial. Um, you know, that kind of the emotional intelligence side of, of feedback from a manager or lack of. And we've got a message here from Jay saying, please advise my manager is very hands off with us as a team because that's how he likes to be managed. Sometimes it's fine. Let's just get on with it. But I feel like I'm bumbling along with zero directional feedback. When I've asked him for more guidance, he shrugs it off and says, everything is fine. Don't worry about it. I'll come to you if there's a problem. Am I being too needy? So feedback in the workplace. That doesn't necessarily need to be compliments and praise. But I guess, as Jay's saying, just a bit of a clue that you're going in the right direction. I don't think you sound needy at all, Jay. Well, I think that's also the main difference between a manager and a leader. Right. So you don't have to be in a position of managerial role in order for you to to lead others. And leading usually comes with providing guidance and guidance could come in constructive feedback. It could come with compliments or it could come with, you know, like things, uh, uh, areas of development and improvement. So when it comes to the workplace, it's really important to like boost up your colleagues, but also the people that you that are in your team. So, for instance, if you are a leader in any way, regardless what your role is, so if you're a leader, you do want to recognize other people's achievements because not only does it reinforce and motivate them to continue working in, in the exact same manner or even to do more, but it also allows them to look up to you and your modeling behavior that you want repeated with other individuals as well. Mm-hmm. But also that sense of providing that that compliment for other people shows that you're a team player. It shows that you are willing to really look at the accomplishments and the achievements of everybody uh, around you. And at the same time, it shows your own confidence. It shows that you don't have the insecurity to recognize other people in fear of either competition or having them like surpass you with promotions and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. It's just about really creating a cohesive and collaborative team. Which makes a lot of sense as you say that. And interesting, there has just recently been a study echoing exactly that. And it was um, people who'd done a project, group project, and submitted their, you know, their findings, but also some bit of a summary to their to their leader. And when someone said, you know, we achieved this, I achieved that, I worked on that, I was strong on this, I, 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 it was less favorably received and they got a lower mark than someone whose final summary said, this this was our project, you know, Al did a great job on X, Y, Z. He brought this strength. I was able to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Because exactly as you say, it shows teamwork, it shows communication. It shows that you're not insecure to give a compliment because mm-hmm. you're, you're feeling good about your achievements and your ability. So the takeaway being 
praising, complimenting your colleagues to your boss can reflect better on you. Um, to the text line we go. Um, Lisa saying, great topic. Why do so many women seek validation from a relationship? I'm in a few Facebook groups and there are so many women in substandard relationships who keep staying in them. Is it so bad to be single? Yes, it's expensive. <laughs> I think I was actually be- cheaper. I was going to say, I think I was better off when I lived alone. Yes, it's expensive, but are women unable to get the recognition and respect from other types of relationships? Why is the romantic relationship the panacea to social status and respectability for so many? Although, in reality, these substandard dynamics sound dreadful. Lisa, I think we might be in the same couple of the same Facebook groups because I read a few messages that have been posted there and go, woman, leave him. What are you doing? It's easier said than done. Of course. I mean, and to be fair, I also want to say that there's a lot of men that are in relationships with women where where the women are extremely toxic. So what I mean, to go back to her question, it's the reason why we stay in toxic relationships. The reason why we succumb to toxic relationships is very much connected to our fear of rejection and our fear of abandonment. And that abandonment wound that we had growing up is what makes it very hard for us to set the boundary because the fear of being alone, of being without a partner supersedes the the pain that we experience in the relationship mm-hmm. or so we think. Mm-hmm. Whereas in reality, when we, when people actually go through that pain, they recognize that the pain of being alone and pain of feeling lonely at times but um, and going through that process is far less than the pain of being in a relationship and recognizing that you're you're acquiescing and, and you're letting go of all of your boundaries and you're really hitting and damaging your own self-worth. And probably feeling lonelier than ever. There's right. nothing lonelier than being in an unhappy relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, no name on this one saying, I tend to feel that nothing I ever do is good enough. But when I do something I do think is good enough, I don't care what others think. Why the mismatch? I get that. I get <laughs> right. that. It's actually, it comes from that internal validation. So once you know and trust yourself mm-hmm. and believe in yourself, the external validation is not necessary. It's just a bonus. But when you don't feel that you're actually good enough in something, no matter how many people come at you with amazing praise, you're just not going to be able to take it on board. It's funny, isn't it, when we think about, you know, if you are getting lots of compliments, but sometimes it's the one negative that really... Mm. That really gets its, gets its hook in you. Um, so let's talk about boosting self-worth, Dr. Thryer. Um, if someone was coming to you with chronically low self-worth and it is impacting their ability to you know, get promotion at work so they don't feel good enough, they're in, this, in what Lisa's calling a substandard relationship. Um, we've had some really interesting messages about where people get their self-worth from. Mm-hmm. And, and I wondered if you could offer some tips that everyone listening today could perhaps use today, tomorrow, and for years to come. (laughs) Sure. So one of the first things that I look at are values. What are your values? And then look at whether or not you're setting boundaries for your values. Can you give us some examples of what a value might be? So for instance, if you value compassion, the boundary of you make, being compassionate towards others and expecting compassion towards yourself and providing your self-compassion should be there, right? So your behaviors and your values should be matching or else we go through something that we call cognitive dissonance, which is very painful. So values are very important. And once you identify what your values are, then you can identify what boundaries you're setting and make sure that you're implementing those boundaries. But more than just that, finding hobbies that you're good at boosts your confidence. Or not even that you just enjoy. 
right, even the ones that you enjoy, but something also that you're good at because it kind of helps boost that self-esteem just a bit. When we've spoken, um, I'm thinking about Hamza uh, Zawali in particular, a career expert and author that's been on the show. He was talking about why why we get enjoyment from jobs. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it is that sense of mastery and accomplishment. Right. Absolutely. Getting better at something. Mm-hmm. And it can be quantifiable. It can be something that you might be scoring higher in. Or it could be to do with output. Or it could just be something you... I don't know, just take a huge amount of joy in that you can see yourself improving on. That's this is a really like menial example, but I'm doing and I'm cringing as I say this. <laughs> I'm doing an improv uh, class. Yeah, cool, cool. No, that is cool. <laughs> That's so brave, actually. Oh my goodness, the first one, Thraya, I was nauseous. I could feel my heart beating out of my chest. I was bricking it, and. Um, it's tonight is the fifth week out of six and it's so interesting to see how your brain starts to work in different ways the Mm. more you observe people who are good at doing it the more you start to have more fun with it the confidence building i'm certainly not saying i'm good at i've got the showcase on friday and i'm telling nobody i'm invited (laughs) nobody to come so So now we all know right everybody just make sure dubai i'm not (laughs) city dubai pay attention (laughs) where or when it is (laughs) google it but it's but it's been so interesting because as an adult we actually very rarely put ourselves in situations where we are rubbish at something or we're starting something from zero and we allow ourselves the freedom to be silly to fail to learn right um and i'm feeling really proud of myself i'm certainly not going to be stepping onto a stage solo anytime soon but i can feel myself getting better and that has actually been a genuine confidence boost and and that is great for a lot of individuals when they're challenging themselves and they're learning new things the Mm -hmm. problem is when you have extremely low self-esteem that is an unrealistic Beyond. expectation. Yeah. So you want to start small. So start with the things that you're really that you are good at and then just build slowly on that. Exercise can be very helpful because exercise you can see tangible changes mm-hmm. as well as cha- ta- like for instance if you're lifting weights if you go from 5 kilos to 10 kilos you can actually see that so that's really helpful. Challenging negative thoughts because in reality our negative thoughts are basically a distorted way of seeing things because it's based on criticism, rejection, abandonment and things like that like previous wounds. So Recognizing the negative thoughts and trying to alter them as much as possible, but also always recognize that your achievements are not always outcome based. That And we say this to parents as well. Don't always praise your children on things that they've done, but rather on their effort, on the determination, on their internal struggles, the, their internal challenges, the things that they've overcome. So not just on outcome-based, because if you're always focused on the outcome, you're missing out on the process that you can then take and translate into various areas of your life. So wise. <laughs> You're so wise, Dr. Thryer. I'm coming to your improv, by the way. Just FYI. (laughs) Letting you know from now. (laughs) You're only allowed to come if you bring a lot of cookies. (laughs) I will. Shout out the cookies you brought, by the way. What company was it? Bake the Day? Bake My Day. Bake My Day. Oh my gosh, they're incredible. Dr. Thryer, thank you so much for coming in. For anyone that wants to find you and the team in real life, where are you and online as well? We are in JLT. Uh, You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, as well as our website, hricdubai.com. Human Relations Institute and Clinic can help with individuals, uh, marital counselling, even got specials when it comes to adoption and all sorts of different areas of life, mental health and well-being here in the UAE. Dr. Thraya, thank you so much. Always appreciate your time. See you next week, but only if you bring treats. Okay. And do a dance at reception. No. (laughs) (laughs) 
And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.